Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. This is going to be a bit of a mixture of some um, basic information and some case studies um, to try and give examples of treatment in, in clinical practice. These are my disclosures. Um, the talk is completely of my own generation and none of these research funding um, bodies have, have influenced the talk to my knowledge. Okay, let's talk about the classification of sexual dysfunction. The ISD-11 was developed or, or released recently and you've got a list of these classifications. The most significant thing here is traditionally the classifications have, have had this addition, additional factor that if a woman has an identifiable potential cause for say, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, she's said not to have the disorder. So say for a woman on an SSRI, if she has um, treatment emergent low sexual desire arousal, she's said to have not the disorder because she's on an SSRI. In fact, now that's been disqualified, she has the disorder, but it's behoven to us to then identify if there are contributing factors. But if she's on an SSRI, it doesn't mean you may not treat her with testosterone or counselling or whatever you're going to use. So it's just changed the, the classification, the way we deal with um, women in this situation. Now, why does female sexual dysfunction matter? Well, because sexual, dis sexual well-being is important right across the lifespan of women. This was a study done in Sweden, and they compared frequency of sexual activity between women aged 70 in 1971 to 2000. And here you can see there's been a significant increase in the reporting of women and men being sexually active between that time, probably relating to the improved health of people over that period. And Interestingly, the frequency of the married men was higher than married women, which is sort of a fascinating concept. But in large studies, we know that women continually report that sec sexual well-being is important to them, and we know that couples that have high-quality sex lives have also high-quality relationships, and clearly that's um, a bi-directional causality. It's not a one-way street there. This is a study of Australian women we did several years ago where we recruited women who were declared they were sexually satisfied or dissatisfied. And the important thing to note here is that irrespective of whether women are pre or post menopause or post, that women who are dissatisfied with their sexual function continue to be sexually active um, regardless of, of their status. So they are actually still being sexually active even though they're not enjoying the sex. And that is something very important to consider. This is a study from the, um, the US where it looked at the increase in dyspyunia or sexual pain in women 
across the menopause transition. And despite women reporting increasing frequency of dyspareunia and pelvic pain, the frequency of sexual activity does not change. So the pattern of sexual activity in a relationship is often established and very much um, in a heterosexual relationship determined by the partner, and women continue to comply. So you need, in most instances, to start the conversation, ask women if they're presently sexually active. If they say no, ask them if it bo that bothers them or not. Um, ask them if they have any sexual concerns or difficulties, irrespective of whether they're active or not. Ask them if they've had a change in their sexual interest or experiencing discomfort. Basically, every woman who goes through menopause will have vulvovaginal atrophy by definition of being estrogen depleted. 6% of Australian women postmenopausally between the ages of 40 and 65 are receiving vaginal estrogen therapy. That's really wrong. And ask women about their sexual well-being. So sexual issues within families are not new. And this is our first case study. And it is the situation that occurred where Gaia, queen of the gods, wanted to have sex with her son Saturn. But her husband Uranus forbade it. So what Gaia and Saturn did was make an arrangement where Saturn actually castrated his father in order to then be able to have relationships with his mother. And what happened? The testes fell from the sky into the Ionic Sea and caused a great foam. You recognize this picture or the face of the lady in the middle? And the great foam resulted in the birth of Aphrodite. And Aphro means foam. So the t this is the first historical evidence that testosterone is really important for the goddess of love. Now, our first case, we have a 46-year-old woman called Karen, and she presents to you with lack of sex, sexual desire. She talks about someone having turned off the tap. She's always had good sexual interests. She has a great relationship and no life stresses. There's nothing particularly interesting in her um, medical history. You do a biopsychosocial assessment, and you ask her about medications. An important point here is that often when we ask patients about medications, women, we say, are you on any medications? No. What do you do for contraception? I'm on the pill. So it's really important to remember that sometimes we have to ask people several times in different ways what they're taking, particularly when it comes to other therapies. So Karen has been taking the oral contraceptive pill for six years. and. Her referring doctor's done some biochemistry, um, or the doctor in your situation might be in the, the doctor she saw last week in your practice. Firstly, this biochemistry looks exactly like anyone's biochemistry on the pill. The pill suppresses ovulation. Every woman on the pill will have a low estradiol and a low testosterone. It is completely meaningless to measure hormones in someone on the pill. 
please do not do this. It, it gives you no information. The only thing useful here is maybe checking her iron stores. So the question is, are you going to discuss testosterone therapy? Are you going to just reassure her that this is a passing phase? Are you going to suggest a trial off the pill and see what happens? Or are you going to send her for relationship counselling and tell her to have a date night? Well, what happens on the pill is, as I've said, the pill switches off ovarian function. That results in a 50% reduction in testosterone blood levels. Now, when this happens to a 20-year-old, it probably doesn't matter because half the testosterone in the blood comes from the ovaries and the other half from the adrenals. By the time someone's 46, their adrenal function is declining, so their testosterone production from their adrenals is much less. So if you switch off the other half from the ovaries, it may make a difference. So in a 20-year-old, I wouldn't suggest stopping the pill. It probably will make no difference. In a 46-year-old, it's worth a trial off the pill and see what happens if ovarian function resumes. And in fact, that's what exactly did happen. Um, I asked the patient to stop the pill and to see what happened. She returned. She was now having regular menstrual cycles. We know that testosterone increases at ovulation and in the luteal phase. Her libido had improved. And your, the issue then was to discuss ongoing contraception that wasn't going to interfere with her ovarian function. As I said, this is less likely to be effective in a much younger woman. Now we've got an older woman, Jane, who's lost interest in sex. She feels very sad about this. This is a real patient. She's married, and she and her husband haven't had sex for two years. She's never had HRT, and she has classic vaginal atrophy symptoms. Nothing else particularly interesting in her history. She's still working in the family business with her husband and has four children and three grandchildren. Her husband doesn't want to talk to her about the problem. He's not particularly interested in sex. He's recently been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and she suspects he's got some erectile dysfunction and that's why he doesn't want to engage in sexual activity but she tells you that she feels left on the shelf and she wants to make a change. So you could recommend that she have her hormone levels checked and you'll then talk to her. You can explain to her that it's perfectly natural for someone of her age to have no sexual interest. What would she expect? Get on with life. And often that is, what is, what is, that is exactly what is said to many of my patients. She's called to come back and discuss the options if her husband's prepared to come along and do something about his problems. And then you'll, in the, in the meantime, give her some treatment for her vaginal atrophy. Or you treat her vaginal atrophy, give her some information to read, do some baseline investigations, and I'd do a testosterone in this setting, and I'll explain why in a minute and ask her if her husband might come the next visit. So I prescribe vaginal estrogen because even if she's not sexually active, it's incredibly effective of reducing even asymptomatic um, urinary tract infections, bacteria, and it will treat urge incontinence and basically women don't have to be sexually active to have vaginal estrogen. I tested her 
baseline testosterone and sex hormone binding globulin and suggested her husband might come the next visit. The point is that she's seeking treatment, however, and whether her husband's involved or not, if she wants treatment, she, he doesn't be, have to be sexually active for her to be sexually active. I do not need to measure her estradiol or FSH because she's 60 and I know she's postmenopausal. I'm only measuring her testosterone as a baseline to make sure that by some surprise she doesn't have a higher testosterone than I expect or a very low sex hormone binding globulin level. A trial of testosterone may improve her libido and give her improved self-esteem. And she may not want her husband to come to the next visit. Ultimately, he might come along, but a lot of women feel very inhibited about discussing their sexuality with their partner present, and they should be given the option of that privacy. I know if it's often said, oh, you need to do the couple thing, but some people don't want the couple thing. They're not ready to say in front of their couple that their sexual relationship's not satisfying. So give them time to get to that point. What about measuring testosterone in women? Well, I said don't measure if, if women are on the pill. The problem is that we use the same assay in women as we do in men, and there's imprecision of the assays at the levels in women. There's a lot of cross-reactivity with other steroids, so if a patient's on some progestins, the testosterone assay will falsely read as though they have a higher level than what their true blood level is. The normal ranges are based on a small number of women. Some of the normal ranges are based on as few as 70 women. And if the testosterone level is below 4 nanomoles per litre, it's a complete best guess. So the only reason you're going to measure testosterone in a woman is to look for hyperandrogenism, not a low testosterone. There is no other point for measuring testosterone in women. Ask your lab how they measure the testosterone. I know Monash Health does a mass spec, which is very reliable, but again, you're not using it to diagnose low testosterone. So if there's only one thing you remember for this entire presentation, do not use a measurement of testosterone to diagnose androgen deficiency. There is no such condition in women. You only use it to diagnose androgen excess and to monitor against the overuse of testosterone if you put a patient on testosterone. Remember to treat vulvovaginal atrophy. I know Rod Babers talked about this. 56% of postmenopausal women have symptomatic VVA. And as I said earlier, only 6% are getting vaginal estrogen. We know that from our data. It is an important treatment. Every woman should be considered a candidate for this intervention. Vaginal moisturizers are an option. They're expensive. And vaginal lubricants are only effective at the time of sexual activity. There are other therapies that may be available in Australia in the future, and they include ospemaphine, which is a tablet, and vaginal DHEA. Now, with respect to testosterone, therapy. I'm not going to give you the whole story here, but um, multiple studies have been done 
and we know that in postmenopausal women with hypoactive sexual desire disorder or dysfunction, low desire that causes distress, testosterone therapy will improve desire and arousal and as shown in this forest plot across studies reduces sexually related personal distress. It is an effective therapy for postmenopausal women presenting like this patient. So, moving back to a younger patient again. Lisa's 46 and she presents with fatigue and low libido. She's been reading magazines about this. Um, she's got oligomenorrhea, she's fatigued, she's getting flushes and vaginal dryness. Her husband's on medications, so he's got low libido, so he rarely initiates. She's working full time and she's heard about adrenal fatigue and wants to know if there's a treatment for that because she's read about treatments. So are you going to say, well, she's got low libido, she needs testosterone, one option. You could prescribe compounded DHEA, would you do that? For adrenal fatigue, she could be perimenopausal, or you could refer her to a psychologist. So first up, until proven otherwise, Lisa's perimenopausal. She's got the right age, she's got oligomenorrhea, she's got vasomotor symptoms, um, she's got vaginal dryness, and she's not sleeping at night. And I put Lisa on an estradiol-containing oral contraceptive pill. Why did I do this? Well, you're not going to put her on an ethanol estradiol-containing pill because that's not going to treat her symptoms. Patients on synthetic estrogenic pills still have hot flushes and night sweats. It's also not good for her blood pressure. It's not good for her bones. The best treatment for this patient right now is estradiol, assuming there are no contraindications. And if you give her an estradiol-containing pill, you're going to save her, you're going to give her contraception, you're going to give her estrogen replacement that will reduce her flushes and protect her bones, and you're going to give her cycle control so she doesn't have to worry about menstrual bleeding irregularly. The problem with using cyclical hormone therapy, like cyclical patch and, and a progestogen or a tablet and a progestogen, is she's still going to keep ovulating. And so she's going to get bleeding all over the place. So one of the simplest thing in the perimenopause is to use something like this. A new option is the availability of a drospyrinone-only pill. And I'm giving that to patients with migraine with aura or thrombosis, and then I give them some add-back ad um, transdermal estrogen, which means that they have cycle control and contraception and some add-back estrogen. But this patient doesn't need treatment for her libido, she needs treatment for her menopause. These are the investigations I might have considered as well, excluding um, causes of fatigue. Um, I would only do a testosterone level if there was a reason to treat her with testosterone, so I wouldn't be ordering it. DHEA, she asks you about this. There is absolutely no evidence that DHEA systemically compounded will improve anything. So you would not prescribe DHEA for her low libido. There is a vaginal preparation that is effective for dyspareunia, but for no other indication. Sarah's 54, she's on Tibolone for menopause. 
It's been very effective, but she's gained weight. Her blood pressure's a bit of a concern, and she has no libido. And someone else, not you, measured her testosterone. So you could say, Tibolin's clearly working because all your symptoms have gone. Don't worry about your libido. Um, It's all what happens in the long-term relationship. Or you could say, she's been on Tibolin long enough. It's three years. We better stop it anyway. Or you could switch her to estradiol, progestogen, and transdermal testosterone. And that's what I did. The rationale was, yes, Tibolone's really good at treating her vasomotor symptoms, but it's not effective enough for her low libido. Tibolone is a little bit more effective than standard estrogen progestin therapy for some women, but not for all women in terms of libido. It's likely that it's contributing to her fluid retention and her weight gain, and therefore her blood pressure as well. And she'd probably do better on the therapeutic option I've suggested. And on review, she lost weight, her blood pressure was stable, and her libido had improved. 69-year-old woman with low libido, previous hormone therapy. Um, She'd stopped it because she was worried about breast cancer. TAH and BSO, and she's been married for 40 years. She's not working. All's good in her life. She's not depressed. Great relationship. She's, this lady's discussed her concerns with her husband, who's very supportive, and she has no other factors that are going to affect what's going on in her circumstances. And she's using vaginal estrogen. So, her husband's had prostate cancer, and he's now using a PDE5 inhibitor with great success, and they want to be sexually active together, and the examination is unremarkable. And she's had routine bloods by someone else, and they're unremarkable. Are any other blood tests needed? Well, she's 69. I don't need to measure any hormones to diagnose the fact that she's postmenopausal, and they're not going to help my treatment in terms of an estradiol or an FSH. But... um, Someone has done a testosterone and it's low, so I know that I don't have to worry about her being hyperangiogenic, and I'm going to give her testosterone therapy. I'm not worried about giving a 69-year-old not on estrogen testosterone therapy because we've shown that it's effective and it's safe in women not on concurrent estrogen therapy. In addition, she's got her VVA treated, so that's not an issue. What we'd normally do is say, come back in 12 weeks to see how you're going. But I always do a blood test at around three weeks, basically to make sure she's not excessively using the therapy and being over, and you know, a bit's good and a bit more is probably better. So I always do a blood test at three weeks and contact the patient. If she has a great response with no adverse effects, I'd continue the therapy. But if you continue a patient on testosterone, you must continue to monitor their blood levels every six to 12 months and actually see them face to face to make sure that there's not evidence of hyperandrogenism they're not reporting, like acne or hirsutism, etc. A few years later, um, she's moved into state. She's come back again. She's seen another GP. So you haven't been monitoring her for a few years, but she's come and seen another GP who refused to prescribe testosterone. 
She's now living on the other side of Melbourne, but she drives over to see you because you prescribed it in the first place. Um, and she said, this other doctor won't give it to me. They said, I'm 75 now, I'm too old. I would still give her testosterone. There is no age limit for stopping testosterone. Claire is sexually active. She and her husband are both well. I would tell her that she can continue to use it as long as she wishes. There's no evidence that she has to stop. As long as she's not got a blood level in the supraphysiological range and she's well, I will treat her. So you've got in your notes this general approach to management of FSD, which I will not repeat. But I will emphasize that the only indication for testosterone in women is for low sexual desire with associated distress. It should not be used to treat anything else. It should not be used to treat low mood. It is not a treatment for depression. It's not a treatment to prevent any condition such as breast cancer or anything else. So this is the only indication. And if you're particularly interested, or a little bit interested, I'd strongly encourage you to go onto the Climacteric Journal website. This white paper is free to download, and it is a full summary of managing sexual well-being after menopause. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.